It was Troy Aikman just uh, last year, I believe it was, commentating on the NFL. If you don't know who Troy Aikman is, Troy Aikman was a quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys for many years, and now he's a commentator. And in one of the shows, he got in trouble at a game because they made, created this roughing the passer call. And they threw the flag on a play where the quarterback got knocked down after he passed the ball. And Troy Aikman made this comment. He said, I hope after they review this that we can take the dresses off. Got him in all kinds of criticism in hot water. I'll give him credit. He didn't back down. They need to take the dresses off. Guys, we need to take the dresses off as men. This word, act like men, this phrase, act like men, in the Greek, it's actually one word. One word, and it means to show oneself a man, to be brave. So if we were to sum it up, this word, act like men, means bravery. To be, and here's the synonym for bravery, courageous. Now I want you to think again what we talked about last night. The very last word that Paul put in that verse was be strong. And just before that he says what? Be courageous. Be strong and courageous. Does that sound familiar? This is not the first time you've heard that in the Bible, is it? This is not new what Paul is giving the Corinthians. Paul is giving us something from the Old Testament. And where do we find this originally in the Old Testament? Yeah, almost. I thought the same thing. And I, I mean immediately, when I saw that and I said, be strong and courageous, immediately I said, Joshua. And then I did a word search. And it starts just a little before Joshua. Go with me back to Genesis. Not Genesis. Listen to me. Deuteronomy. It'd take us all night to get through preaching from Genesis to Deuteronomy. Y'all be sure about by then. Go to Deuteronomy and go to chapter 31. Right here, we are invited to Moses' birthday party. In Deuteronomy 31 and verse 1, it says, So Moses continued to speak these words to all of Israel, and he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I told you it was his birthday. I'm no longer able to go out and come in. The Lord said to me, You shall not go over. The Lord your God himself will go over before you. He will destroy those nations before you so that you shall dispossess them. And Joshua will go over at your head as the Lord has spoken. And the Lord will do to them as he did to Sion and Og and the kings of the Amorites and to their land when he destroyed them. And the Lord will give them over to you. And you shall do to them according to the whole commandment that I have commanded you. And here it is, be strong and courageous. Do not fear. Or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. We find right here that this word, strong and courageous, that we always associate just is actually not just for leadership. It's for the entire people of Israel. It's for all the men. So whether you're a preacher, whether you're a Sunday school teacher, whether you are deacon in the church, it does not matter. Every man in God's family is called to be strong and courageous. All of us. We have that responsibility placed upon us. Courage. 
Courage is the stock and trade of a man. Courage in the face of danger. Courage in the face of temptation. Courage in the face of loss or suffering or opposition. God tells them, do not fear. And this is why he says, do not fear. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. Now that's what he said to Israel in Deuteronomy. Go to the right in your Bibles, just a few pages probably in your Bible, to Joshua, to the passage that we are so familiar with, Joshua chapter 1. At this point, Moses has, has passed away. Moses is no longer alive. And in Joshua chapter 1, in verse 2, the Lord is speaking now to Joshua, who will take Moses' place. Verse 2 says, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, and you and all this people into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. God is now commanding them to move, and he's telling Joshua, you will lead them. So go now, Joshua, and do this. Now drop down to verses 5, beginning in verse 5. No man shall be able to, t- to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. And here it is. Be strong and courageous. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous being careful to do according to all that the law that Mo, uh, all the law that Moses my servant commanded you do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may be you may have good success wherever you go this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success have i not commanded you Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Be strong and courageous. Be very strong and courageous. We are called to be courageous men. And let me show you. You want to know the key to being courageous? Because the Lord tells that. He reveals this to Joshua. He tells him that in verse 8. Look back at verse 8 real quick. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that. So you see, it is reading and the meditation on the word of God that causes this to happen so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. I don't mean success. God's not talking about success in business. He's not talking about success in every little thing you put your hand to, but he means success in the way that you live out your life as a child of God. Meditate on the word of God. That is the key. That is the way we have courage and are found successful. I'm not done in the Old Testament. I want you to flip over to 1 Chronicles. Keep on going to the right. 1 Chronicles. And from this time, go to chapter 22. 1 Chronicles chapter 22, we find David speaking to his son Solomon concerning of the temple. Look with me down in verse 11, 1 Chronicles 22. Now, be with you so that you may succeed in building the house of the Lord your God as he has spoken concerning you. 
only may the Lord grant you concerning you, excuse me, only may the Lord grant you discretion and understanding that when he gives you your charge over Israel, you may keep the law of the Lord your God. Then you will prosper if you are careful to observe the statutes and the rules that the Lord God commanded Moses for Israel. Be strong and courageous. Fear not. Do not be dismayed. Again, it is the word of God. It's God's command that strengthens up Solomon in order for him to have courage and to be strong. See that be strong and courageous didn't begin with, with Paul. I apologize for that. Be strong and courageous doesn't begin with Paul handing it to the Corinthians. It goes back and we hear it echoed throughout the Old Testament. It becomes the mantra of the man of God. Be strong and courageous. Implications of this passage. Message that we continue to see God giving to his people. It's that fact that, fellas... Guys, we will encounter opposition. Your devotion of the Lord to the Lord will be tested. Ladies, it applies to you the same way. Your devotion to the Lord will be tested. You're called to be courageous as well. One more place that I want to show you in the Old Testament where these words are spoken. Second Chronicles. Over one more. Go towards the end of it, chapter 32. Here we find Hezekiah making for work in order to deal with the oncoming threat. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 32 of 2 Chronicles, it says, After these things and these acts of the faithful, faithful acts of faithfulness. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah and encamped against the fortified cities, thinking to win them for himself. And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and intended to fight against Jerusalem, he planned with his officers and his mighty men to stop the water of the springs that were outside the city, and they helped him. A great many people were gathered, and they stopped all the springs and the brook that flowed through the land, saying, Why should the kings of Assyria come and find this water? He set to work resolutely and built up all the wall that was broken down and raised towers upon it. And outside it, he built another wall and he strengthened the millow in the city of David. He also made weapons and shields in abundance and he set combat commanders over the people and gathered them together to him in the square at the gate of the city and spoke encouragingly to them saying, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him. For there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh. But with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Is that not one of the greatest pep talks you could ever give? Man, he fired up the men, didn't he? Be strong and courageous. But listen, it wasn't that they just trusted in God to swoop down and take care of everything and they just sat back. They still had work to do. They go and 
fill in all and, and to stop up the, the water that was flowing. They had to scrub the walls. They had to prepare for battle, and then they had to fight the battle. This is what we see God calling men to do. The man of God is not stifled by fear. Real men, to use the vernacular of the day, don't We don't need to go over and crawl in a corner and suck our thumb until somebody consoles us and makes us feel better. Real men understand the truth of God's word and they stand boldly where God has placed us. The man of God knows this, believes this, and he is strong and courageous. Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 16 again. So we're called to be strong. We're called to act like men, which means to be courageous. And now, Paul says, stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in the faith. That means a man of God is to be immovable. A stalwart of adherence to biblical principles. Everyone else shifts their position because it's convenient. The man of God is immovable. When others capitulate to keep everybody else happy, the man of God is immovable. When the worldly man looks the other way because it will be a financial profit for him, the man of God is immovable. When other men give in to temptation because they can find a way to justify their weakness in the flesh, the man of God is immovable. When other men are shaken and led astray by false teaching, the man of God is immovable because he knows the Word of God. He's meditated on the, on the Word of God. He's rooted in the Word of God. The man of God remains steadfast regardless of the burden that it brings, regardless of the dislike from others, regardless of the loss that he suffers while others prosper. The man of God is immovable. He does not negotiate. He does not compromise on his convictions. He is grounded on the commands of God. There is no place... In any part of a man of God for squishy Christianity. You know what squishy Christianity is? It's the Pillsbury Doughboy. Commercial. You push him in the middle, he giggles and he gives in. Right? There's none of that with the man of God. You never give in. You stand firm. There's plenty of seeker-sensitive churches around our great nation where they welcome people in, and we should be welcoming. But they, they bring them in, they help them fit in, they grin sin. They don't tell them the sin's wrong. They want them to feel comfortable. We don't need churches like that. We just have small churches like this. That's all there is. And in that church, 
So be it. The reason that this is so important is because confronted with temptation in his life, he realizes that if he does give in to that temptation, if he gives in to the that comes before him, it not only affects him, it affects others. It affects future generations. We know this from the Ten Commandments. God told Moses, he said, here, write this down. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Number two, you shall not make any graven image with your hand to bow down to and worship. And so he says in that commandment, he says, don't worship other gods. The Lord visits the iniquity of the, listen to this word, fathers. On the, to the third and the fourth generation of the fathers. The sin of the fathers. It's not that God holds the child accountable for the father's sin. God's word makes that clear. You don't put to death a son for the, for the iniquity of the father. God is saying is there's consequences for our sinful behavior. When we sin, I'm not the only one that gets hurt. And God says, he's making the point here that the consequence of sin is not easily overcome. When we sin, the next generation is affected by that. And God says that it will affect not only the next generation, but the one after that and the one after that. And if that third generation is affected by my sin, then that generation is affected. That sin, guess what? It affects the third and the fourth generation there. It becomes a perpetual thing in the life of people that should never have been led down a sinful behavior. But here's the beauty in that. It's not as though God is just hard-hearted. Instead, God says right behind that, but I show my steadfast love to thousands who love me and keep my commandments. What a blessing God is all grace to us. It's a merciful God we serve. He gives us warning about our behavior. So, fellas, what kind of men do we want to be? We realize that our lives affect more than ourselves. I've been very fortunate throughout my life to have men God placed in my life to guide me. And it wasn't just random guys. It was godly men. At different seasons of my life, at different ages through my life, a youth leader who was very influential and, and was helpful for me and guided me at a time when I was a, a teenager still. And then uh, another man who was 10 years older than me who, who was very uh, active with me in, in living out the Christian faith for a season of my life. And those men, they, those men fell behind me. Not in, they just I moved on and they were busy doing other things in our lives. Our paths didn't cross like they once did. And then I'm going to embarrass him here tonight, but God put me as a student at, at uh, ABAC, and I got a job at the experiment station. Not just any job. And God places me to work down at the watershed with a guy named Ricky Fletcher. And I, I want to just testify to you. You may know things about him I don't know. All right? And I sure don't want to embarrass him, embarrass him here tonight. But at a period in a young man's life, that is such a pivotal moment 
transitioning into new freedoms that you have not experienced before. I had a man I had to ride in a truck with on a regular basis who talked about the Lord and talked about his life. And I saw him model Christian behavior and his work ethic and the way he talked to people. And I saw him back to me one day after he had said something. And I don't know if you even remember this, Brother Ricky. And I'm, I really don't you over there. But he said something. To, and, and we were sitting around in a circle. You know experiment station workers. Those government workers, they take their breaks. And they talk and have fun. And, and Ricky said something. And I don't know. Maybe it was something. I don't even remember what it was. But that man was convicted by it. And the next day, when I showed up at work, the first thing he did, he said, Michael, I need to tell you something. I, I said something yesterday I shouldn't have said. And I had to think. I couldn't even remember what it was. But it bothered him, and he followed his conviction, and he humbled himself, and he came to me. He didn't live a perfect life in front of me, but he modeled to me humility. I'm thankful for godly men like that. Then, later on, my beautiful wife that I have, we, we get married and we're living, we live for a year in an apartment in town and then we're shopping for a house. And by golly, it was a clawfoot tub that did me in. <laughs> Girls, I know how you like a clawfoot tub. It just made the house perfect. You know, it was just what it is. I got sick of that clawfoot tub and bathing in a shower curtain for 14 years. And I'm okay with that. I, I'll, I would bathe in that same foot tub with a shower curtain that sucks in on you when somebody opens the door. I'd do it all over again for the neighbor I had next door. God didn't give us that house because it had a cute little clawfoot tub. God gave us that house because right across my driveway, right next to me in town, was a man named Steve Brown and a lady named Lisa Brown who were raising up three boys that were still pretty young. And they were two very godly people. They became more than just friends to us. They became like family to us. And they, they modeled. I got to watch on a daily basis what a Christian home looked like. I already had had that, but I, I watched how they were living their life in the same time period that we are living our lives. And I had this man, Steve, who was in conviction in my own life that I needed as a young married man right next door. We watched as Lisa got diagnosed with a brain tumor. She came over and shared with us that. We watched her faith as she went through that and, and trusted in the Lord and was not afraid to die and God was gracious. She's still alive today and that's been many years ago. But we also saw the humility in the man of God that Steve was because I wasn't there, but Amy was next door talking to Lisa. Steve came in and he, apparently he talked a little stronger than he normally talks to his wife. And Amy left and came back over. I was nowhere around. And not long after she got back in the house, there was a knock on our back door. And it was Steve. And he told Amy, he said, I need to apologize to you. I'm sorry for the way I spoke to my wife. I embarrassed her and I embarrassed myself. That's a strong man of God who follows his conviction enough to go next door and give an apology to somebody he didn't have to give an apology to. I have seven men. I'm not going to tell you about all of them. That's two of them. But the one I'm most thankful for is the one that's sitting back there tonight. And that's my dad who, who raised me up in a godly home and, and modeled for me 
these virtues that we're looking at in Scripture. Men, you need to be that guy. Be that to, if, be that to your grandchildren. Model that for them. You, you know how important it is to have a, man, a, a father and lives his convictions out? I'm going to give you some statistics tonight. It's back from all the way to 1994, 95, done in Sweden. I know there'll be some cultural differences, but listen to these numbers about faith. If you have a dad and a mom who are regular church churchgoers, dad and mom, just children of those parents are 32%. 32% of those children will end up being regular churchgoers. Still pretty low, right? Still, though, that, that's what you get. 32, remember that number. A dad who is not, she's irregular, the number actually goes up to 37.7% of those children, almost 38%. If mom is regular and dad is irregular, hang on to your hats. 3% of those children will end up being regular churchgoers. 3%. If mom is regular but dad is completely non-practicing, has no faith in anything at all, he does not pretend that he knows God, has any interest in God, but mom is a regular church tender, one and a half percent of children end up being regular churchgoers. Dad is a regular churchgoer, but mom is completely in, in, interested in any type of worship of any kind, knowing who God is, but dad is regular. 44% of those children end up being regular church attenders. That's the highest number of all of those I just read off to you. Do you see how important it is to have men of God who raise up children who love the Lord. We need faithful men of God. God is, is the one who has designed the family. He's the one who's designed the church and society, and his design is better than any man's design. God has placed male leadership in all three of those places. Men of God... Do not lose faith. Third thing, Paul says, be watchful. That's how he begins this, right? Uh, be, be watchful, be alert, some of your translations would say. Who's Paul talking to? He's talking to the men in the church. He's telling them that you need to be very careful. You need to be paying attention, act like men, be watchful. Not that women shouldn't be alert as well, but the women have not been given the responsibility to be watchful for the men. The men have been given responsibility to be watchful for the women and the children. It's the man's responsibility. What are we watching for, guys? Paul says be watchful. What are we watching for? Paul tells the Ephesians in Acts chapter 20, he tells the, the Ephesian elders, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. I know that fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among you, your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And then there's the word, therefore, be alert, be watchful. 
Paul's telling us to do. We have to be careful what we are watching for. We are watching for false teachers. We're watching for liars. We're watching for deceivers. We're watching for anyone who wants to come in and do harm to those we love. Guys, we are the protectors. The problem we have is the society we live in and how it influences so many men. I don't think it influences the men in here tonight, but let me just give you this word of warning anyway. Guys, don't be made soft by our pink society. Let me illustrate that for you. The reason I call it the pink society that we live in. There was a former University of Iowa head coach back in the 70s and into the 80s. His name was Hayden Fry. Don't know if anybody remembers Hayden Fry. Just heard this not too long ago, and it stuck with me. Hayden Fry was a, when he went through college, psychology major. And he remembered from his psychology classes, as he was sitting back as a head football coach at Iowa, he decided, he said, how can I get an advantage over my opponents? And he remembered this from his psychology classes, that the color pink causes people to relax. It gives them a sense of calm. And so he had this brilliant idea. We'll paint the visitor's locker room pink. And they did. In 1979, they ran with the rollers and they started putting pink paint on every wall in the visitor's football locker room. They painted the walls. They painted the ceilings. They installed pink sinks, pink urinals and even put pink carpet in. To this day, it is still pink. You, wanna, you ask the question then, did it work? He had a winning season that year. It did affect them in some way. It made them so mad. Michigan, Michigan State rolls in, they despise going there. So they go in ahead. They, as they still do it today, they still send a crew in ahead of them to placard the entire walls in there with Michigan Cover up the pink. Guys, don't be soft by our pink society. We are the security team. The men of the church are called to sit facing the door and watching. Keeping our eyes open, we are to be paranoid. Be paranoid about and influence our children or affect our wives. Be discerning with everything that takes place in our homes and in our church. We are the security team. There's another thing that we need to be watching for. We need to be watching for the good stuff, not just the bad stuff. Be watching for the good stuff. We are to be the watchmen on the wall, as it said in Isaiah 62. God speaking through Isaiah says, on your walls set watchmen all the day, all the night, shall never be silent. The watchmen are continuously looking. They're looking for the one who is going to return with word they need to know, safe or are we not safe? 
They're looking for the man who comes, and you know the passage from Isaiah 52, and I like our Sunday school teacher that taught this last week, the word, the phrase he used, they looked for the posture of the man who was returning because how beautiful are the feet of the one who brings good news. Looking for the posture. What's your posture, guys? Are you watching the posture of others? Are they coming in to bring harm? Or are they coming in to bring good news? Because the good news is, as Isaiah 62 continues, in verse 10, says to go through. Go through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up. Build up the highway. Clear it of stones. Lift up a, sing, a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord is proclaimed to the end of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. We are looking and we are sharing the gospel with our family, but we're sharing the good news that our Savior comes and that he has. The last thing I want to share with you this evening, and we'll be done, is the last thing that Paul says in verse 14. Let all that you do be done in love. Do it all in love. Our world's got some different opinions and definitions for the word love. So we need to be careful about what kind of love we understand that Paul is commanding us men to have for others. Now there's different words in the Greek for love. You know them probably already. Eros is that intimate type of love. We see the philia, phileo, we see is the brotherly love, the, uh, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. This word is, that word you know too, agape. Agape love. You may be familiar with the word agape, what agape love is. Let me give it to you one more time, the definition of agape love. This involves faithfulness, commitment, and act of the will. You see, that's why God can command that of you. It's not an emotion. It is an act of the will. Therefore, God can say, men, do everything in love. Men, love your wives. Distinguished from the other types of love by its moral nature and its strong character. We know what love is from 1 Corinthians 13. So familiar to us, right? 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient and kind, love does not envy or boast, it is not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never ends. God has called us to have an unending, agape love. What that means, what that looks like is that, guys, we rejoice with those who rejoice, but at times we also weep with those who weep. People need to see that. Guys, I know that's uncomfortable for us. It is for me. It's probably the worst thing I, I deal with. It's one of the hardest things I struggle with is allowing my emotions to be seen, that when, when my wife is upset, that I, too, will be upset with her. Because we feel like we're, we're called in at that moment to be the strength, the strong one, to be the strength. But it looks strong. Sometimes we look like them, and in that, we are strong by showing that we care. 
we sympathize, we can empathize with them in the pain that they go through. Jesus said, this is how the world will know that you are my disciple. That you have love one for another. Agape love. The last thing I'll share. Christ is the perfect model of agape love for us. The songs that were sung tonight express what Christ has done in order for you to be called a child of God. That God sent forth His Son and His Son was the substitutionary sacrifice for what you and I deserve. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around that. What does it look like? I watched the movie, The Passion of Christ, one time. I didn't need to see it again. Not that I couldn't watch it again. But I watched it the one time. Going back to my neighbor, Steve Brown. Steve came over after we had went and watched it. it took our youth, actually, from church that we were leading at the time. And Steve asked me, you watched it, what did you think of it? And I told him, I said, well, Steve, it was very moving. Brought me to tears. It hurt to watch. I said, but there's one thing that it couldn't capture. And that was the separation of the Son from the Father. It could not capture the agony that Christ experienced when He was no longer in unison with the Father. For the first time in eternity, but he was sacrificed for us. That's agape love. And the best way that they expressed that agape love in that film, Passion of the Christ, was after Jesus carried his cross up to the hill. And it was time for him to be nailed to the cross. Throw him off the cross in the movie. Because Jesus said, take my life from me, but I give it up freely. And in the movie, a beaten, torn body crawls up to the cross, willing, in pain, laid down on the cross, to shreds. And then he put his outstretched hand there them to drive the spike into and then he stuck his other hand out for them to drive the other spike into and Jesus modeled for us perfectly now what agape love is it was an act of the will that's what we do we sacrifice ourselves for the sake of others but we ourselves need that savior just as we said last night we cannot be men of God and children of God we need to understand that this is what Christ has done. I'll leave you with Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16 that tells us to love like the God-man, Jesus Christ. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body Joined and held together by every joint with, uh, with which it is equipped. 
Each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Guys, that's not toxic masculinity. That's the beauty of biblical masculinity. And I hope that we can do that. I hope men can, get, can, can link arms through the churches that are found faithful and be strong men of God, courageous men of God. Bow with me and let's pray tonight. Father, your word gives us such hope that we cannot have in ourselves. But rather, Lord, it's hope that can only be found in your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you that you offer us the free gift of salvation. Nothing that we can do will ever earn what you give us in your grace. Pray that each person here tonight has trusted in the God-man, Jesus Christ, who laid his life out freely that we may be forgiven for our sins and washed white as snow. God, I thank you for this week that Liberty Baptist has experienced. Good in it, Lord, is Jesus Christ Himself. And Lord, may you bless the going forth of your word that it never returns void as you promised. May you strengthen the men in this church, any who were waiting. Lord, those who were finding an opportunity of weakness lying ahead. God, may you deter them, lead them back. May they repent of whatever thought they might have had, every decision that was going to lead them away, repent and turn back to Christ. Lord, that we may be found faithful, standing firm in the faith. God, I give everything that we've done here tonight to you. May you work through what has been said, through the teaching of your word. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, let's stand on our feet as we sing without him tonight. I ask if you need to come. You've never been saved. Without Him, you can do nothing. Never be who God's called us to be. But anyway, we're not in charge. Come tonight as we sing.
Sunday, they were in school. 9.45 to come to Sunday school. Wasn't a problem, but uh, anyway, I just remember that. Uh, take what we heard. of our church